Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. This is Reading the Globe. It's Friday, October 8, 2021. I'm Michael Washburn, reporting live from New York. Japan's new leader. The Economist magazine continues its usually astute and detailed coverage of the Japanese political scene with an article in its October 2 edition about the country's new prime minister, Kishida Fumio, who was recently elected president of the ruling Liberal Democratic Party. Since the article's publication, Fumio has taken the reins of office from Yoshihide Suga, an unpopular leader who announced last month that he would not seek re-election as head of the party. Fumio's record in Japanese politics and international diplomacy is uneven. As foreign minister under Prime Minister Shinzo Abe in the last decade, Fumio drank vodka with Russian diplomat Sergei Lavrov, but the somewhat forced conviviality did not achieve the hoped-for breakthrough in Russian-Japanese relations. Fumio also organized a visit by then-U.S. President Barack Obama to his hometown of Hiroshima and tried to help work out an agreement whereby Japan would compensate South Korean women whom the Japanese military forced into sexual slavery during the Second World War. No deal ever came about, but The Economist article blames a change of government in South Korea rather than any failure on Fumio's part. The article describes Fumio as a capable, respected, but somewhat bland career politician whom observers do not expect to inspire millions of voters and hold power for very long. Given the widespread disappointment with the tenure of Suga, perhaps you could almost view Fumio as a Gerald Ford to Suga's Richard Nixon, although Fumio is a decade younger than Suga, and the latter, for all his unpopularity, did not trigger proceedings that would force him to resign or face impeachment. Is the comparison really that outlandish? Suga is widely reviled for his heavy-handed, impersonal approach to steering the nation through the COVID-19 crisis. He and his colleagues became the target of criticism from no less a figure than writer Haruki Murakami for their supercilious and cliché-ridden pronouncements to a populist chafing under strict lockdown measures that Suga himself refused to follow, attending a dinner with more than the recommended maximum of five people present. Many in Japan also blame Suga for the fiasco of the 2021 Olympics, which citizens could not watch in person or even in public places, as curfews drove them from bars and cafes. Japan has long looked to the games for uplift, and if they were going to fall on their face in such a spectacular manner, maybe it would have been better not to hold them at all and avoid the humiliation. Perhaps Fumio will do better. It is hard to see how he could do worse. The New Republic Slams Tucker The New Republic's October issue features a cover story highly critical of Fox News host Tucker Carlson. Before getting into the content of the piece, it is worth noting that there was a time well within living memory when the New Republic was popular among some conservatives. Not just neoconservatives, who shared its concern for Israel and U.S. policy in the Middle East, but even social conservatives, who found some of its in-depth articles in the 1990s to be quite trenchant. The examples spring to mind of Heather MacDonald's scathing piece on diversity training programs, which enriched those who conducted them while bullying and ostracizing the employees who had to undergo them, and Stephanie Gutmann's cover story debunking the politically correct hype about a gender-integrated military, 
and exposing the serious problems that integration has caused. Neither of those two incisive and hard-hitting features has lost its relevance today. The New Republic also used to blast the incompetence and corruption of the police force in Washington, D.C., and the force's bungling of murder cases. Since the magazine's acquisition by Facebook billionaire Chris Hughes and its sale in 2016 to Wynne McCormack, a once lively and eclectic publication has grown much more consistently left-wing. The iconoclasm that helped make it interesting for readers across the ideological spectrum has partly dried up. For a magazine out to try to shape the terms of political debate and help tilt the country in a more progressive direction, Fox News host Carlson, one of the most outspoken conservative commentators on the planet, is an obvious target. On the cover of the October issue is a grotesque image of Carlson's familiar features melting into those of a hideous monster. Alex Shepard's lengthy article concedes that Carlson was once a semi-serious journalist. It traces what Shepard sees as Carlson's evolution from a commentator who used to care about accurate reporting into a provocateur, far more interested in clickbait, ratings, and giving bigots out there in Trumpland the kind of commentary they can get off on. As examples of Carlson's supposed bigotry and intolerance, the article cites his glib commentary on the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, the former Black Panther imprisoned in Pennsylvania for the murder of police officer Daniel Faulkner. Shepard also pointedly criticizes Carlson's support for vaccine skepticism, among other issues. There are many more examples one could cite. Shepard's bile for such a prolific right-wing commentator is not easily exhausted, but these two examples are instructive. It is curious that an article complaining about Carlson's supposed drift away from a factual approach should itself contain shoddy reporting. Shepard gets the basic facts of the Mumia Abu-Jamal case wrong. He incorrectly states that the shooting happened in 1982. Given the well-documented forensic and witness evidence implicating Abu-Jamal in the murder, there is nothing wrong or racist about Carlson's position. The article's criticism of Carlson's vaccine skepticism is also free from evidence or argumentation of any kind. It does not engage with the science of COVID-19 and vaccinations, but rather takes Carlson to task for welcoming skepticism about the orthodoxies of Dr. Anthony Fauci and the Biden administration. One gets to the end of this very long article with no more sense than when one started of why Carlson is wrong to encourage good faith discussion and debate about the issue most directly affecting Americans' lives in 2021. Maybe the New Republic has not stooped to the level of so-called protesters who showed up outside Carlson's home in the fall of 2018 and threatened him and his family. But it is a sad state of affairs when the magazine that some used to call in-flight reading for Air Force One abandons fact-based argumentation in favor of vicious ad hominem attacks on commentators with different views. Facebook's Darkest Hour The server outage causing a loss of access for several hours and the testimony of whistleblower Francis Haugen were a double punch to the gut of the world's most entrenched and powerful social network during the week of October 4. For its part, the outage seemed almost like a mocking answer to Mark Zuckerberg as portrayed by Jesse Eisenberg in the 2010 film The Social Network. In one scene late in the film, Zuckerberg gets extremely upset over an outage and chastises his CFO Eduardo Saverin for causing it to happen. What sets Facebook apart from other platforms, Zuckerberg yells, is that the servers don't crash ever. 
Well, on October 4, that is precisely what happened to Facebook and all its subsidiary apps. Facebook attributes the outage to a temporary loss of border gateway protocol routing. People around the world found themselves unexpectedly shut out of the network. What may matter far more in the long term is their loss of faith in the technical expertise of a platform already dogged by accusations of malfeasance, which brings us to Haugen's testimony. An article in The Guardian on October 8, written by Siva Vaidhyanathan, a professor of media studies at the University of Virginia, calls this widely aired and analyzed testimony the biggest PR disaster that Facebook has experienced to date. It summarizes Haugen's denunciation of the psychological harm that she accuses Facebook, or more precisely Instagram, of having inflicted on teen girls concerned about their appearance and popularity. The article also contrasts Haugen's broad audience with the relatively scarce attention paid to an earlier whistleblower, Sophie Zhang, who sounded the alarm about how political figures in foreign places, from Honduras to India, had misused Facebook for anti-democratic ends. The Guardian piece sharply criticizes Facebook's reply to Haugen, characterizing it as an ad hominem response that tries to obfuscate the issue at hand by emphasizing Haugen's relatively brief tenure at Facebook and her lack of direct interaction with its senior executives. It ridicules Facebook's rather weak attempts to deny that the site posts divisive content that stokes anger on the part of users. For those of us who have followed the Facebook story for a while, all this is news and not news. For some of us, the network is deeply flawed in conception and operates on a highly dubious model. Privacy settings on the site are of limited use. Facebook's motto used to be, Facebook helps you connect and share with the people in your life, and it has always encouraged users to upload photos and share personal information and stories ostensibly for the appreciation and enjoyment of those people in your life. At the same time, it encourages, and makes virtually unavoidable, forms of social interaction that inevitably bring a user's profile before the eyes of strangers. If you accept a friend request, even from someone you know quite well, it is often the case that this friend has so-called friends, whom he or she does not really know well. And if they are strangers to the mutual friend, they are certainly strangers to you but they can now see your photos and contact information. If you go to a page somewhere on Facebook that is open to the public or has a low threshold for admitting members, or even to a friend's page, you may find that it is a forum where strangers can come and scribble whatever they like, and you cannot throw the book at them for libel because, technically speaking, they are not saying these things in public. You can block users and try to be an online cop, but this necessarily happens after the fact when the damage is already done. A more apt motto for the site might be, Facebook gives strangers a tool to harass you. A Literary Museum the website Book and Film Globe, edited by Neil Pollock, has generously given this critic space to write about one of the most internationally admired authors of our time, Haruki Murakami of Japan. The novelist and short story writer, who has not been shy about criticizing Japan's political elite for its missteps during the COVID crisis, is now the impetus behind the opening on October 1 of the Waseda International House of Literature, also known as the Haruki Murakami Library, at his alma mater, Waseda University in Tokyo. In my BFG article, 
I have tried to give readers a sense of the ambitious nature of this new cultural institution. According to a Kyoto News report, the five-story building, designed by Kengo Kuma, will be home to a vast body of books and papers donated by Murakami, including a number of handwritten manuscripts. Murakami's vision is for it to be a resource and meeting place for scholars, researchers, and readers, with an interest not just in his own work, but in the vast and rich ancient, medieval, modern, and contemporary literature of Japan. Even if the launch of the museum serves the highest cultural and philosophical ends, observers know that Japan is hurting and needs something to be proud of, and not just for the reasons affecting people everywhere in the time of COVID. In a series of articles this year, The Economist has detailed how it's long been a point of pride for Japan to host the Olympics. Many Japanese wanted to host the Games in 1940, but the timing wasn't right then for obvious reasons. The Games of 1964 brought some prestige. Many in Japan were hell-bent on hosting the event in 2020, but the pandemic made it necessary to put off the Games. This year, there were calls for further postponement or even cancellation, but the International Olympic Committee declared it would accept no further postponement. If Japan did not hold the Games this summer, it might not get another chance. The 2021 Olympics did not go as people had hoped, even by their modest expectations during the time of COVID. They could not watch the Games in person, and curfews made it necessary to vacate bars and restaurants, which did not experience anything close to the boom that momentous public events have brought in the past. Clearly, the people of Japan need something to feel good about, and here lies a key to understanding the significance of the new museum's opening. But is there anything in their modern literature that they perhaps should be cautious about celebrating? You might well wish that talented Japanese writers would condemn in the strongest terms the excesses of nationalism, as exemplified in the past by their nation's military. But where writers of the last century are concerned, that is not often or even usually the case. For example, Japan's most revered author of the 20th century, Yukayo Mishima, expressed sympathy and support for the Japanese military during the Second World War, including kamikaze pilots. In the woke climate of 2021, this is not a subject people are comfortable exploring. It is much easier to divide the world into oppressors and people of color and pretend that history is simple and avoid even thinking about Japan's wartime record and its military's unspeakable conduct in other parts of Asia. History is always so much more complex than certain people would like it to be. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper.